If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. A little over a month ago, I experienced one of those times when you get completely lost in a memory. Um, you just, you're immediately back in that place, seeing the sights, smelling the smells, thinking the same kinds of thoughts. And it was when I was uh, walking through with my mom, probably about fourth grade, in a department store in southern Ohio called Van Lunen's. And I remember that as uh, Thanksgiving was getting close. In fact, Thanksgiving was the next day. We'd be going over to family and celebrating. There were already Christmas decorations being set out for sale. And I remember complaining to my mom saying, you know, Thanksgiving's not even over yet and we've already got Christmas decorations being sold. Why, why don't they wait till after Thanksgiving and do one holiday at the time? And I was transported back to that memory because I was with a few of my own youngsters in a store. And it was just before Halloween, and they made the same comment. Geez, Dad, look at that. They've already got Christmas decorations out being sold. We're not even through Halloween yet. And my comment was, yeah, what happened to Thanksgiving? Well, certainly Christmas is a huge event for us in this country. It's a huge cultural event. I saw a friend just uh, yesterday morning at a coffee shop, and he's originally from India, and he was telling me how different, how much smaller Christmas is there. Uh, all the holidays are, are celebrated by people getting up very early in the morning, and so uh, they get up at 4 a.m., the Christians do, for a Christmas service. And it's not marked by tons of gift giving, but rather uh, buying themselves new clothes to go and to, to wear at church. And that's about it. Well, that's so much different than it is here, where Christmas pervades everything from where we shop and where we live as Christmas lights go up uh, to music on the radio. And for some, Christmas is just a time of parties. It's just a time of celebrating with family or with friends, the songs of Santa and the season and the voice of Bing Crosby and Burl Ives and Nat King Cole or even the Rat Pack are what come to our minds. But then there are those for whom Christmas is largely a spiritual time. It's time to think about Jesus, His birth, and the good news it brings for all the world. And still yet, there are some that are there in the middle. Uh, they are not explicitly religious year-round, but they have a kind of cultural religiosity that causes them to still cling to Christmas as being an important time to be at church or to think about Jesus Himself. In the middle of all those differences of meaning of Christmas for us, we have a cultural division. And in fact, some have cashed in on this on certain radio and television shows and even in some pulpits. And there is talk about a supposed war on Christmas. And certainly we can talk about the, the influences and, and the, the fallout from shifting cultural attitudes about, about Christmas and its priorities. But, but if we're going to talk about a war on Christmas, then we need to be absolutely clear. And that is, in reality, there is no such thing as a war on Christmas but there is such a thing as a war on Christ. That there's a war against Christ. And that war is not anything new. It's not something that has just arisen in the last few years in this country. In fact, it goes back a very, very long time, right up to that very first Christmas, but really stretching back even beyond. And so at this time of year when we love to hear words like hope and peace and glad tidings of great joy, 
Especially if we are Christians, we, we love these words because they know what they mean for us. And yet we also need to be reminded of the great cost by which we have joy and peace and experience great joy. So specifically this morning, we want to come to that part of the Christmas narrative that is invariably left off of our cards and our letters. It's not the part that we typically quote from and put on websites and on our phone and on our t-shirts. It's not the part of the story that we really want to think about very much because in the immediate circumstances, there's not much joy, there's not much peace. So why preach it this morning on Christmas morning? Well, two reasons. First, on a very practical level, I have preached every other portion of the Gospels that deal with Christmas over the last 11 years. There's no other places to go in the Gospels uh, that relate to the Christmas story. But secondly, and more importantly, because this is what God says about Christmas. This is what God says about the birth of Christ. And so it's important for us to understand it and to believe it. Now, our passage opens in a glorious way, a way that we just sung about, about the unexpected worship of Christ, the newborn king, but it ends with weeping and sorrow and fear. And yet, as we will see during our time together this morning, it is precisely these things, not just the hopeful things, not just the joyous things, but even the weeping and the mourning that foreshadow the means by which ultimate joy is ours in Christ. That his birth is not just one of weeping and sorrow, but one of exaltation and worship and salvation. So let's begin reading at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. We'll do things a little bit different this morning. We're going to walk through a kind of exposition and then at, towards the, the second half, we'll, we'll get into what does it mean for us. All right, so the story first and then the application. Hear the word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God bless the reading of his word. We're actually going to look at all of chapter 2 this morning, but we pause here because it's a part of the story that we're probably most familiar with. We sing about it in hymns like We Three Kings, but there's lots of things that we misunderstand, at least on a popular level, about what's taking place with these wise men. First off, we have no idea how many there actually were. We know they give him three gifts, and some have inferred from that three, uh, three kings or three wise men, but the reality is we don't know if there's just two. Or if there's three or four or five or six, we have no idea how many of these wise men there were. 
Also, as to who they were, we know for a fact they're not kings. Uh, uh, that's one of, the, one of the things I hate about singing that song. Uh, I can remember back to the church growing up that used to do a Christmas pageant every year, and every day it tended, or every year it tended to get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And so uh, the last time that I remember seeing this show, when these wise men came, they were kings in full regalia. I mean, kings that had capes that spanned the entire length of a church aisle, uh, you know, longer than the train of some bride's dresses coming down with girls dancing and throwing flowers before them. This huge pomp and circumstance thing. They are not kings. They are not kings at all. Our text says wise men, but the underlying word is magi, which simply means great or powerful in wisdom, but not in kingliness. This and the fact that they are given an audience with Herod, though, does mean that they probably did arise, arrive with a massive entourage. Servants, soldiers, and such were all part of a large caravan that they would have traveled with as they came. In part because of the distance that they traveled, they would have needed such a large group. So the, so the, the kind of Christmas movie version where it's you know, three guys on donkeys or camels and kind of setting up little, little tents all across the desert it is not reality from what we would know culturally. We know these men do come from the east, likely either Babylon or Persia. And assuming that they went along the normal trade route, that means a journey of about 800 miles, largely on foot. Their supplies would have been reserved likely for the animals. If they were able to make 20 miles a day, it would have taken them at least five weeks then to travel from their home to where Jesus was, maybe more if they were going slower. But why were they seeking Jesus in the first place? They say that they saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him in verse 2. Now, because of what we know of the beliefs of the Eastern peoples at that time, scholars are pretty confident that these men were into astrology and dreams and prophecies of the future and books that talked about such things. Not much has changed. We just got a free calendar from Monitor Pharmacy. We were thankful for that, but immediately my kids were captivated by the signs of the zodiac and what those things might mean. We haven't come very far in uh, three or four thousand years, have we? But how does that lead them to know about a Jewish king? That's the question. How does a star in their their pagan practices? Well. Perhaps, the thought is, beyond uh, what they may have bumped into in their travels, remember people like Daniel and Nehemiah, godly believing Jews, were held captive and served in the courts of places like Babylon and Persia. And it was their kind of Israelite cultural residue they left behind, perhaps even copies of the Old Testament scriptures themselves, that these kind of religious philosophers would have, would have uh, obtained and studied, thinking that they could integrate that with themselves. And perhaps they remembered a passage like Numbers 24, where a prophecy is uttered, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And perhaps in his providence, a literal star was put in the sky, whereby these people might come and see the scepter, the king, that would rise up and rule over Israel. However it went, they have seen some kind of star, they have discerned that it points to a promised king in Israel, and they have now come to worship this king of the Jews. But Herod is not at all happy about this. Those of you that have been here with us through Luke, you remember that we saw uh, just a few weeks ago that the Romans had given Herod this title, King of the Jews, though he himself was no Jew at all. Suddenly now his authority is under threat. 
His authority is under threat, not just his either. All of the leadership was threatened by this announcement. Notice what Matthew says in verse 3. Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Well, there's lots of different reasons to that it might be, but I think the most likely thing is the fact that just as there was no Jewish king on the throne in Israel anymore, so there now had risen up a kind of lay leadership, an oligarchy that ruled the government by committee. This was known as the Sanhedrin, and if there was now a king in Israel, they would no longer be needed. So Herod gathers the Jewish leaders together, the Sanhedrin, and asks them about this king. Who is this king? What are they talking about? Who are these wise men here to see? And in verse 5, they told him that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, Herod knows that there is a prophecy from the Jews about this king who will lead all of the country, and he knows the city in which this king will be born, and so he immediately begins planning. He calls the wise men back into his presence and begins asking them about the star and how it brought them here and where they're going. He tells them that you should go and find this child, this king, and come back and tell me where he is so that I might worship him in as well. But he has no interest in worshiping Jesus. Instead, he has in mind to eliminate the threat to his authority, to eliminate that threat to his authority by killing this so-called king of the Jews. And that would not at all be out of character for him. Herod loved the power of the sword. When he first came into power, he was worried that his family would one day oust him, that they would gain uh, popularity. And so he slaughtered most of his family that they would not try and take the throne from him. Later, the Jewish leadership that we just mentioned, the Sanhedrin, when he thought they were giving him too much trouble, he killed half of them. 30 or 40 of Israel's leading elders, scribes, and priests wiped out in a day. Later, in a fit of rage, he had 300 of his own courts, Roman nobility, killed. At a time when he began to not trust his wife, he had her executed, followed by his mother, followed by three of his own sons. Even on his deathbed, He called all of the Roman nobility in that area, all of the Roman leadership and their families to come and to be with him in the palace. And then he ordered that they not be allowed to leave. He set guards around the entirety of his palace and ordered that upon his death, upon Herod's death, which was any moment now, that he would be honored with the slaughter of everybody in that building. Now, thankfully, they did not follow those orders. But my point in sharing all that is to show that's how Herod dealt with threats. That's how Herod dealt with things that he did not. Just kill it. Just kill them. Just put them to death. And so even here, he thinks of this Jewish infant that might one day be king, that might one day be a threat to his authority. And he says, I'll just take him out at birth and it will all be over. The Magi, not knowing this, leave Herod And the star appears again and leads them right to the home of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. And what do they do when they get there? Exactly what they had planned to do. They worship him. Matthew says, going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, can you imagine Joseph when he came home from work? 
You know, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's kind of like the opposite of, I showed up to the kid's school to pick him up the other day and there was an ambulance outside. And immediately your antenna go up. What's going on? Are my kids hurt? How come my cell phone's not ringing to let me know what's going on? So, so here comes Joseph back from the carpentry shop and suddenly there's this entire entourage of people, of soldiers, of servants, uh, of animals, of food being cooked, all gathered around his little house. And he's thinking, uh, what's going on? And he goes in and here are these, these wise men, these magi bowing down in worship to his little two-year-old son with his wife standing by saying, I have no idea what's going on. They just showed up. Something about a star. I don't know, Joseph. Please come in and help. Jesus was a king and as a king, he must be honored and reverenced. And these wise men do that. Not just in their posture, not just in their attitude, but in their journey there and the giving of the gifts. Think about how costly that was. Not just the gifts, which we're talking about, but just the journey there. I mean, weeks, perhaps months, assembling all of these resources and caravaning this entire group 800 miles across the desert. All of these things were of immense value, of immense value. Gold was as precious then, perhaps even more precious than it is today. Frankincense was a kind of glittery spice uh, painfully produced from tree sap, and myrrh was a highly prized spice or perfume often used in, in embalming. Now, it's possible that each of these things point to a significant thing in Jesus' ministry. To be honest, we don't know for sure. The Bible never makes it explicit. At the very least, we can say these are gifts worthy of a king. I think that's the central point that Matthew is making. I think that's the point that they, they offer in these things. They have all their treasures traveling with them. And from their treasures, it says, they produce these three. And we don't know how long these men stayed or even what Mary and Joseph thought about these things. We're not told. But as the wise men were leaving, God warned them in a dream, don't go back to Herod. Uh, don't tell them what you have found. And so they simply return home. But they're not the only ones warned through a dream. Look at verse 13. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and there remain until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is angry. Herod is livid at the lack of information from the Magi and decides to go for the nuclear option. Rather than just find the one child, he will kill all of the children that it could possibly be in this town. Now, why two years old? This is why he asked them about the star. When did it rise? And what he realized that two years ago, on the night of Jesus' birth, that's when the star arose. That's what signaled all these events in place that led now two years later, the Magi showing up for this visit. 
So, so here again is something that we tend to get wrong with our Christmas narrative, okay? So when I was in high school, I had this um, literature and speech teacher that, that I liked a lot. And she, she one time, I don't remember how we were talking about it, but she said at her house, they have their manger scene sh- set up and they have the angels on the top. They have Mary and Joseph Jesus down there and they have shepherds and animals. And then she tells her girls to go out in the hallway and put the wise men out there somewhere. Uh, because they were still on the way the night that, that Jesus was born. Uh, likewise, here we have uh, these, uh, uh, this star appearing two years ago, and of course it reappears, and it leads them and all these things, and now Herod is just saying, look, okay, fine, about two years, every boy two years old and under, done. Done. He isn't taking any chances. He wants to sweep away this threat in one vicious moment, and yet Jesus is spared from the slaughter. Now, some scholars think this whole thing's made up about the slaughter. They deny these events actually ever happened because there's no record of this killing in Bethlehem beyond what we have recorded for us in the Bible. But let's put ourselves in the minds of historians back in this day. The killing of all the boys two-year-old and younger in Bethlehem, uh, though, though terrible, would have probably only numbered about 20, maybe 30 at most boys. You think about the record that Herod has the notorious killing sprees that he's gone on. Do you think anybody back then is really worried about 20 Hebrew boys in a little town called Bethlehem? It's barely a blip on Herod's uh, history, his, 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 on the radar of his atrocities. So it's not surprising that it wouldn't have been recorded anywhere else. And yet for those fathers, those mothers in Bethlehem, this would have been devastating. It would have been a time of great weeping and sorrow. But Herod doesn't live forever. Picking up in verse 19, Matthew says, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. An angel directs Joseph to return to Israel, to his home, to return to Israel, and naturally that's where he wants to go, back to Bethlehem where he had come from. But after the death of his father, Herod, Archelaus, his son, has come to power. And once again, if you remember just a few weeks ago, we were talking about how terrible uh, Archelaus was in his reign, how he wanted to prove himself to be every bit as king as his father and continued his violent and capricious ways. And Joseph becomes worried. What if word gets back that a boy escaped? that the purge that his father Herod had committed was not successful, that this boy had been gone, but now he's returned. So rather than go back to Bethlehem, Joseph is warned at what might happen, and so he takes his family to the outskirts of Jewish life in Israel. They're still there, but they're out of what we might call today the sticks. They're out in the backwater regions. They're out in the places of absolutely no significance where no one's going to be looking for them and no one's going to care. And that's where Jesus lives and is raised until he begins his ministry about 30 years later. Now, as we think about these closing scenes on the Christmas story, it's not a pretty picture. Jesus is spared, but the rest of those sons are not. The rest of those families, as the language of Jeremiah is invoked, are weeping and will not be comforted. What do we take away from this passage? What can we see in this dark denouement 
of the Christmas story that would give us hope, that would cause us to feel joy and know peace at Christmas today? Well, first we need to see that God fulfills His redemptive purposes. In this passage and today, we can see that God fulfills His redemptive, excuse me, His redemptive promises, His redemptive promises. Okay, so I let slip. That's that's two. If you're keeping track, promises then purposes. Go ahead, you go ahead and just write that down there. God fulfill His redemptive promises. Think about the fact that three times Matthew says what happened in Jesus' life was taking place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Three, no less than three times he says that. And that theme of fulfillment doesn't even start with Matthew. It starts with these unknowing scribes and priests who says that it's written by the prophet that the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Now that quotation from Micah points not just to the birthplace of Christ, but also to his ministry a spiritual shepherd to guide his people. That's what Jesus will be, and that's what we see here, the kind of first promise that that God is fulfilling, the promise of a spiritual shepherd, the promise of a spiritual shepherd. Jesus is not only born in the very village God promised, but indeed did live and die and rise again as the great shepherd of souls. But then in his flight to Egypt, Jesus also fulfills God's promises. Now, at first, the nature of this fulfillment seems arbitrary and unclear. In fact, one famous liberal scholar named William Barclay, whose commentaries are very popular, uh, and he's good on Luke, but frankly terrible in the Gospels, so if you ever come across them, don't read them. He says, flat out, Matthew is wrong in verse 15. He says, he here sees a prophecy where there is no prophecy. Now, on the other end, one of my heroes, John Broadus, one of the founders of Southern Seminary, looks at this verse and he says, it's confusing. It's perplexing. I'm not really sure what Matthew is doing here. Nevertheless, he is God's servant writing God's word, and therefore, whatever he's doing is surely right, and we accept it on faith. Well, that's pious, definitely a different perspective than Barclay, but maybe we can do better than just that. So what's the problem? Look at verse 15. Matthew quotes from the prophet Hosea, uh, Hosea, who says that Jesus' return from Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus went to Egypt, now he's been called back out of Egypt to Israel, and Matthew says, see, that's what God promised. But wait a minute, wait a minute. You go back, you fact check Matthew, and it seems like there's a problem. Because you go back and you look at this passage in Hosea, and it has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. It has nothing to do with the Messiah, as far as we can tell. It's all about how God safely called his people Israel, his son Israel, out of Egypt into the promised land. So you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Matthew, uh, are you getting carried away here? What are you talking about? How can Jesus coming out of Egypt fulfill a prophecy that that wasn't meant to be a prophecy? It was looking backwards saying, look how God is faithful. He called called his son out of Egypt. He called the nation of Israel out of bondage into freedom in the promised land. What does that have to do with Jesus? The answer is, depending on how you read your Bible, everything has everything to do with Jesus. Because you see, Jesus isn't just one man. Everything about Jesus' life, everything about his ministry is based on one thing, substitution. He is a stand-in for all who would be saved. He is the fulfillment of the greater hope of so many other people. He is standing in the place of others. So Israel is called God's son in the Old Testament, but Israel was a disobedient son. Adam is called God's son, but he was a disobedient son. Israel failed to be the son of God that they were called to be as a nation. Adam failed to be the son of God. He was called to be in the garden, but Jesus didn't fail. 
Jesus wasn't disobedient. He came in full obedience, living as the second Adam. Here, specifically, the perfect Israelite, the perfect Son of God. And so, so this is the way in which Jesus fulfills this verse. He, is, he fulfills it as the promise of a perfect Son. He is the fulfillment of a promise of a perfect Son. And so when we get this reference in Hosea... All of Israel's life and history then is pointing it to and finding its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the good and better Israel, the good and better son. Thus Jesus fulfills this promise of the Christ being born in Bethlehem, but also fulfills the promise that from the dangerous lane of the enemy, God would call forth his son in redemptive blessings. He did it with Israel as a nation, and now he does it with Israel in Christ. He brings them out of a place of danger, Egypt, into a place of blessing. Similarly, Matthew says that Jesus as the son fulfills the prophetic word of Jeremiah 31. When Herod murders the boys of Bethlehem, Matthew says, This was fulfilled by what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, you look back at Jeremiah 35 and you say, I'm not sure what this has to do with Jesus. I'm not sure what this has to do with the Christ. It looks like that, that, that he's not looking forward, he's looking around him. Rachel, of course, is the mother of Israel in the fact, in the, in the sense that she produced 12 sons that became 12 tribes that became Israel as a nation. And now Jeremiah is in the midst of the exile and is looking around at all of those sons of Israel that are now killed or taken captive off into exile and is saying the nation as a whole is like a mother weeping for children that will never return. All of these Israelites that were, that were judged by God unfaithful and therefore dragged out of the promised land, off into Babylon, off into Persia, uh, to die and be long forgotten, he says, the nation is weeping for them, for sons that will never return. But now how much more Jesus just as that attack in the exile, as, as people literally invaded the city of Jerusalem and burned down its buildings and destroyed the temple and slaughtered men and women and children in the streets, was meant to wipe out nation, the, the entirety of the nation of Israel. So also you have the enemy of God here in Herod seeking to come into Bethlehem and wipe out the promised son, the true Israelite in Christ. Thus, this attack on Jesus' life is repeating in miniature what Satan tried to do through the exile, what he has always tried to do, and yet he failed. More importantly, Jesus not only survived this attack, but that trail of tears, uh, of that, 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 that trail of tears of the loss of the Hebrews to sin comes to an end because of the redemptive work that's going to happen. The exile for Israel is finally over because now their Messiah has come. And so we see again in verse 23, we see again in verse 23 now, another prophetic fulfillment that may not be immediately obvious to us. Matthew says that Jesus being taken to Nazareth to live happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You ever look that up? There's no prophetic word that says Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Nothing. No prophetic word about the Messiah being a Nazarene. Nothing at all. And you say, now he's just making stuff up. What is Matthew doing? 
How do we understand this? Assuming that the Bible does not contradict itself, that it is indeed God's word. Well, notice what he says. And all the other times he says, to fulfill what the prophet said. And here he says, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. Matthew is not taking one promise specifically. He's not taking uh, a, um, a kind of picture like we, like we see in the Exodus coming out or in the exile, but rather he is looking at a large theme that runs through the promises of God in the Old Testament concerning Jesus. And he is showing this to be its fulfillment, specifically the promise that Christ would be a man of sorrows a man of sorrows. He would be despised and rejected and people would take no notice of him. And in part, people rejected Jesus. We've been seeing this right at the outset of Luke's gospel. They rejected him. Why? Because he came from Nazareth. Do you remember what they say? What good can come from Nazareth, right? Or as some famous singer once said, what could good from, come from Bay City? Well, you came from Bay City and you're not that good, so I guess the question stands. That would, that, was, that would be my response. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled that promise. But you notice he wasn't raised there. He wasn't raised in Bethlehem where people would have, would have had this expectation of the Messiah being raised and seeing they would have been looking at the boys, especially after this business with the wise men. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? Is that him? And instead, what's happened? He's off in the sticks. You know, if you're a Star Wars fan, he's not on Coruscant. He's on Tatooine, where nobody cares. And you're thinking, you know, surely the, the, you know, the one to fulfill the promise is going to be in Coruscant, the big city, where it's all hustle and bustle and all the movers and shakers are. No. Jesus is born out, out, out in the hills. He's a, he's a, he's a hick. And so people say, come on, that's not the Messiah. <laughs> Get out of here. What do you know? How can you be a rabbi? How can you teach us with authority of God's word? You've never been raised. You don't have been around the temple. You're not with the rabbis. You're not with the Pharisees. Come on, who do you think you are? They could not fathom Christ coming from such a place of low estate. And that theme that we see in the prophets of rejection and humility and sorrow comes together in Matthew's mind by where he is raised. He will be a Nazarene. He will be a man of sorrows, despised and rejected because of where he's born and because of how he will save his people, namely, not by being a conquering king, but by being a dying savior. So how do we respond to these things, this picture of Jesus, this, this picture of God fulfillment? Well, first of all, with thankfulness and joy and confidence in God. You think about the hundreds of years that God was promising Jesus would come and what kind of savior is going to be. And he kept his word. I can barely remember what I promised three days ago. And God just keeps working and keeps working and keeps working. And, and, and he's doing things all over the place. You have no idea what he's doing. Just think about the horror of the exile. And yet what happened? The gospel was left behind in the east. So suddenly here at the birth of Jesus, you've got these wise men showing up. How, who could bring good from that? No one but God. No one but God. And he is faithfully still today working to fulfill his promises and bring them to completion. The same God who kept these promises here can be trusted to keep his promises today. The same scripture that came to life before the eyes of so many in Jesus' day is still pulsing with power as we take it up and read it in faith. So that's the first thing that we see, that God fulfills his redemptive promises. But then secondly, we see that God fulfills his redemptive purposes. That God fulfills his redemptive purposes. First of all, we see this in the fact that Jesus was a protected savior that Jesus was a protected Savior. 
All that work to bring Jesus in the world and almost immediately his life is threatened. Think about that. If you're, if you're all familiar with the Bible, you know that's no accident. Uh, this was not the result of some unfortunate series of events that befell Jesus, causing God to leap into action. No, Jesus' life was always under threat of death because his ancestors' lives were always under the threat of death. At the very beginning of all things, when humanity's life was just bestowed on them by God, their lives before him was one of happiness and holiness. What happened? Satan attacked. Satan attacked. Just as he had gone after God's glory and found himself cursed, so now he tempted God's image bearers to go after God's glory. And they did. They rejected God's glory in search of their own. Satan was attack, successful in his attack. They gave in to the serpent's temptation and our first parents brought God's good creation into a place of taint by having sin and death now corrupt it. But God wouldn't have the last word. Even then he said, okay, Satan, uh, sin's here now. Death is a reality. My image bearers are, are scarred forever, but, but I'll have the last word. I'm going to send the son. I'm going to send a son and know it will look like you have succeeded though you will injure him. You will not have killed him. Instead, he will kill you by the heel of his foot. He will crush your skull and grind you into the dust that you will forever eat the rest of your life and it will be finished. This war that is beginning will be done and there is nothing that you can do about it. Oh, but he tried. Oh, but he tried. The very next chapter, what happens? This, the, the, this promised line that is one day going to produce the Messiah, the Savior, this Son, is threatened with extinction as Satan puts it in the heart of Cain to kill Abel. You see what, what Satan is trying to do right from the beginning? Cut off the, the line of promise. I don't want that Son to appear. I don't want the skull crusher to appear. And so all throughout the history of Israel, that's why the, the, the prophets are always killed by unbelievers because Satan is trying always with violence to stop the line that will produce Jesus. And so even when he can't do that and he's born, what does he do? But have this insane, angered, violent King Herod try to take out Jesus. But God protects him. God preserves his life. Because he's not yet ready to be the Messiah. He's two. He's two. He can't be our Savior. But here's the thing. That protection did not last forever. The, the, the provision that we see in Jesus' life in these verses would not last forever. There was more for him to do at this point, more for him to preach, more for him to learn, more for him to fulfill. But 30 years from now, that time would become complete. He would have fulfilled every promise of Scripture, preached every sermon necessary for His people, performed every miracle as evidence of His mercy and authority, and obeyed every command of His heavenly Father. And He would be ready for the protection to stop. He would be ready as the perfect substitute, as the perfect Son to take up the cross we all deserve and become an atoning sacrifice from God's wrath, that God's wrath might be appeased and that we might be forgiven. On that day, there would be no protection. On the day that we celebrate as Good Friday, there was no preservation. Just the opposite. The fullness of suffering and mourning and pain was his. Death was his. It was the cup that he would drink down to its very dregs. A death not that he deserved because of sin, but a death, a violent death under the spiritual judgment of God that we deserve. That's the kind of Savior that Jesus is. 
protected then, but not protected at the cross. Enduring wrath for, that we today might be protected from God's wrath. And having completed that saving work, now there is a proclaimed salvation that's available to all. There is a proclaimed salvation. And here we return to the wise men, back to the beginning. Why are they here? I mean, let's just think about this for a minute. Let's just step out of, I'm reading and they're there and I'm moving on. Let's think about why in the world were they there? Why did Matthew put this in here? You know, two years ago, we looked at Luke and we saw that there's shepherds, there's priests, there's a prophetess, all these people seeing and rejoicing in Jesus, and they're all Jewish. They're all Jesus' own people there to see his Messiah waiting for the Savior. Matthew doesn't tell us about any of those people. And yet... He begins his gospel in chapter 1, giving us a genealogy of Jesus that establishes beyond doubt his his Jewish bona fides. He is a son of Abraham. He is from the line of David. He is a rightful king born in Israel. It's as Jewish as you can get. It's a gospel written to Jews. But he starts off with Gentiles. Worse, pagans who mix practices of astrology and the promises of God in Scripture. That's something that any good Israelite would be condemned for. And yet here, right at the beginning of a gospel written for Jews, pagan Gentiles are shown giving costly worship to the Jewish Messiah. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? Why is that the case? I think Matthew is wanting us to see this from the very beginning. Here is the Jewish Messiah. He is is descendant. He is fulfilling every promise from the Old Testament, but he's not just a savior for the Jews. He's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah for the world's hope of salvation is open for all people. Matthew never condones or endorses the pagan ways of these men, quite the opposite. I think for those who know the law, they're to look at these wise men and say they're pagan sinners. Yeah, they are. But notice also the links to which God will bring pagan sinners to himself that they might know and worship Christ. He allows the exile 500 years previous this for godly women, men and women to leave behind a residue of scriptural teaching about himself and his Christ. Then he works this star, this amazing mysterious star, to announce the birth of Christ and lead them right to his doorstep. Now I've got friends get all caught up on this star. I mean big time caught up on this star. And they missed the point. I had a friend in college um, last year. I posted something about a timeline of, uh, uh, of Jesus' life during uh, the final week, the thing that I put in the bulletin insert for you guys several weeks ago. We entered Holy Week about, uh, you know, actually know that the very day and the year in which Jesus died and came back to life. And he was like, oh, that's terrible. I hate that. That doesn't make no sense. I disagree. I'm like, what? what's going on? Well, well, why, what's the big deal? Why don't you like that? He says, the dates are all wrong. I said, okay, well, how, are the, how do you know the dates are wrong? And he says, because we know when he was born. Okay, how do we know when he was born? Because we know when the star was in the sky. How do we know when the star was in the sky? Let's get to the point here. And some guy with some web page and too much time on his hands has has calculations about the convergence of planets and a comet that came through at a certain time and has all these scientific natural ways of explaining um, uh, when Jesus came into this world based on what that star was in a way that we can know. The problem is then that shifts all the time things to not make any sense anywhere else in Jesus' life. And more importantly, he missed the point. 
You're not supposed to read this and think, now I wonder, was that uh, Venus rising a long time alongside Jupiter's uh, seasonal equal? No, 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 no. That's not the point. Now, now, could God have done that? Could at the beginning of the universe when he puts the Milky Way and the planets and starts zooming comets out of his fingers into orbit and say, I'm going to line everything up right here at the beginning so at this time and this place and this way, Jesus will be, sure he could have. But when you read the text... That's not the point I'm thinking you're supposed to take away from it. How did this star get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? I mean, the stars are out there. They're not going this way on a horizontal plane. It doesn't say that it led them or went before them, only that they saw the star in the east and somehow it led them to Jerusalem. How did that star go then lead them from that five-little-mile walk from Jerusalem where they encounter Herod to Bethlehem, as it says in verse 9? How did the star stand over the very spot where the Christ child was living at that moment and lead them to his doorstep? I, I think you're supposed to walk away and say, not science, God's glory. It's a miracle. That's what you're supposed to see here. He is amazingly, powerfully, gloriously merciful and gracious to sinners, these magi, and bring them over 800 miles that they might see Jesus and better understand how God is going to save humanity. And for Matthew, I think, especially at the very beginning of a gospel, it's written to Jews. He wants to show where the gospel will end. At the beginning, a Jewish Messiah is born and Gentiles are told what? Come and see. Come and see. But at the end... That Messiah, that Messiah who has died for sins and is raised back to life as the king of the universe stands before his disciples and says, it's no longer come and see. It is now go and tell. Go and tell. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." This morning, the Magi give us hope because as far as I know, none of us are Jewish. We're Gentile pagan sinners that need the redeeming work of Christ just like these men did. God sent Christ to be the Savior for all the nations on the earth and through Him we can have forgiveness and freedom from sin. We can all come humbly before, even without the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, we can kneel down knowing that 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 we don't need to give Christ a gift because he's already given us the gift of his life and his death and his resurrection. And so hopefully, perhaps next year, with greater significance in our minds and our hearts, we'll be able to sing, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that Christ would indeed abide in our hearts through faith, that we would see the glory of your purposes and your promises to redeem a people for yourself. Purposes and promises fulfilled in Christ. Father, more than just some abstract notion, just more than just this generic faith, this generic goodwill or joy or peace among men, that, Father, we would see that the peace that passes all understanding comes only through faith in Christ, only through grabbing hold of His saving work by trusting Him completely and by leaving all else behind. 
Father, this morning as we celebrate Christmas in all kinds of ways with all kinds of people. Father, for us, for us and how we carry ourselves and the thoughts that consume us and the things that drive us, may it truly be the worship of Christ that we think about and focus on and give thanks for during this Christmas season. Father, what better joy, what better hope and peace could come to all the world than knowing our ancient foe has been defeated by that promised son. That curse is now being reversed. That what Satan started as a war, God has ended fully and finally through the sending of his son, Jesus. Father, may this move us not only to faith, but to worship of you, the living God and the Savior that you sent. Amen.